Hello, this is Jack Harity, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 19th, 2023 issue of the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, Whiplash Day of Debt Limit Talk Ends Without a Breakthrough. Subheading, Republicans return to the negotiating table on Friday evening after briefly walking out, though the evening talks lasted only an hour by Katie Edmondson. Bipartisan talks between top White House and Republican congressional officials over a deal to raise the debt limit ended without a breakthrough on Friday, capping a day of whiplash as negotiators seeking to avoid the first default in the nation's history repeatedly started and ended discussions amid growing GOP frustration. Negotiations came to a halt on Friday morning after Republicans vented anger about discussions on spending caps, and Speaker Kevin McCarthy declared a pause to the talks. Just hours later, he announced Republicans returned to the negotiating table, but the discussions ended after an hour on Friday night, and it was unclear when negotiators planned to meet again. The series of abrupt turns reflected the unwieldy state of negotiations over a bipartisan deal to avert a debt default that could occur as soon as June 1st, coupled with a mounting sense of urgency to find a resolution as Congress runs out of time to avoid the economic calamity that could follow. By the end of the night, Mr. McCarthy's top advisors were casting doubt on whether they could achieve a deal by the end of the weekend, a timeline the Speaker had said on Thursday he saw a path to achieving. Several outstanding issues remain in the negotiations, lawmakers said, but Republicans appeared particularly discouraged by what they said was White House officials' refusal to budge on how strictly to cap federal spending. Quote, It's very frustrating if they want to come into the room and think we're going to spend more money next year than we did this year, end quote, Mr. McCarthy, a California Republican, said on Fox Business on Friday evening, as he announced that his deputies would return to the negotiating table. Quote, that's not right, and that's not going to happen, end quote. The bill that House Republicans passed last month would raise the nation's borrowing limit into next year in exchange for freezing spending at last year's levels for a decade, which would lead to cuts of an average of 18%. Quote, we've got to get movement by the White House, and we don't have any movement, end quote, Mr. McCarthy said earlier on Friday, as he announced the initial pause in negotiations. He added, quote, we can't be spending more money. We have to spend less than we spent the year before, end quote. Mr. Biden was checking in regularly with the negotiators from Hiroshima, Japan, where he was attending the annual meeting of the group of seven major industrial powers but aides traveling with him sounded less optimistic about a deal in the coming days than they had a day earlier. Quote, There's no question we have serious differences, and this is going to continue to be a difficult conversation, end quote, Corinne Jean-Pierre, the White House press secretary, told reporters in Japan. Quote, That's not lost on us, but the president's team is going to continue to work hard toward a reasonable bipartisan solution, that can pass the House and the Senate." End quote. In a nod to growing complaints on the left, Ms. Jean-Pierre emphasized the need for both Republican and Democratic votes. And when pressed by reporters on a more measured tone, she insisted that, quote, 
the optimism continues to be there, end quote, while adding several times that a deal would depend on whether Mr. McCarthy, quote, will negotiate in good faith, end quote, and that everyone should recognize that, quote, you don't get everything that you want, end quote. Both Democratic and Republican leaders were facing pressure from their bases not to compromise. Former President Donald J. Trump weighed in on Friday on his social media site, declaring that Republicans should not make a deal on the debt ceiling unless they've got everything they wanted. Quote, do not fold, end quote, he wrote. In a letter, liberal Democratic lawmakers renewed their calls for Mr. Biden to, quote, refuse to reward Republicans' reckless refusal to raise the debt ceiling without preconditions, end quote, urging him instead to invoke the 14th Amendment to continue issuing new debt to pay bondholders, Social Security recipients, and government employees, and others. Negotiators were at odds over a handful of issues, including the extent to which a possible deal would include tougher work requirements for social safety net programs, a proposal that has drawn a backlash from progressive Democrats and the length of any debt limit extension. Conservatives in the House GOP conference had grown increasingly concerned in recent days that Mr. McCarthy would agree to a deal freezing spending at current levels rather than at last year's levels and would not lock in the kind of spending cuts for which they have long agitated. Time is running out for lawmakers to strike a deal translate it into legislation, and pass it through Congress for Mr. Biden's signature. Mr. McCarthy has promised his conference that he will give lawmakers 72 hours to read the bill before they vote on it, abiding by a rule his conference adopted at the beginning of the year. Heading. Jim Brown, football great and civil rights champion, dies at 87. Subheading. After a Hall of Fame career in the NFL, he pursued social activism and Hollywood stardom, but his image was stained by accusations of abuse toward women. By Richard Goldstein. Jim Brown, the Cleveland Browns fullback who is acclaimed as one of the greatest players in pro football history, and who remained in the public eye as a Hollywood action hero and a civil rights activist, though his name was later tarnished by accusations of violent conduct against women, died on Thursday night at his home in Los Angeles. He was 87. His family announced his death on Friday on Instagram. Playing for the Browns from 1957 to 1965, after earning All-American honors at Syracuse University and football and lacrosse, Brown helped take Cleveland to the 1964 National Football League Championship. In any game, he dragged defenders when he wasn't running over them or flattening them with his stiff arm. He eluded them with his footwork when he wasn't sweeping around ends and outrunning them. He never missed a game, piercing defensive lines in 118 consecutive regular season games, though he played one year with a broken toe and another with a sprained wrist. Quote, All you can do is grab, hold, hang on, and wait for help. End quote. Sam Huff, the Hall of Fame middle linebacker for the Giants and the Washington team, now known as the Commanders, once told Time Magazine. Brown was voted football's greatest player of the 20th century by a six-member panel of experts assembled by the Associated Press in 1999. A panel of 85 experts selected by NFL Films in 2010 placed him number two all-time behind the wide receiver Jerry Rice of the San Francisco 49ers. 
He was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1971, the Lacrosse Hall of Fame in 1984, and the College Football Hall of Fame in 1995. Brown was still in top form at only 30 years old when he stunned the football world in the summer of 1966 by retiring to pursue an acting career. He had appeared in the 1964 western Rio Conchos and was involved in the shooting of the World War II film The Dirty Dozen in England, with plans to attend the Browns' training camp afterward, but wet weather delayed completion of the filming. When he notified Art Modell, the Browns' owner, that he would be reporting late, Modell said he would fine him for every day he missed camp. Affronted by the threat, Brown called a news conference to announce that he was done with pro football. When the modern civil rights movement gained momentum in the 1950s, few elite athletes spoke out on racial issues, but Brown had no hesitation. Working to promote economic development in Cleveland's black neighborhoods while playing for the Browns, he founded the Negro Industrial and Economic Union, parentheses, later known as the Black Economic Union, end parentheses, as a vehicle to create jobs. It facilitated loans to black businessmen in poor areas, what he called green power, reflecting his long-held belief that economic self-sufficiency held more promise than mass protests. In June 1967, Brown invited other leading black athletes, most notably Bill Russell and Lou Elsendor, parentheses, the future Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, end parentheses, to the office of his economic union to hear Muhammad Ali after Ali had been stripped of his heavyweight boxing title and faced imprisonment for refusing to be drafted in protest over the Vietnam War. In what came to be called the Ali Summit, viewed as a watershed for the development of racial awareness among athletes, Brown and the others at the session publicly voiced their support for Ali. By the early 1970s, Brown's economic union had largely faded. But in the late 1980s, he founded the Amer I Can Foundation to teach basic life skills to gang members and prisoners, mainly in California, and steer them away from violence. The foundation expanded nationally and remains active. Handsome with a magnificent physique, he was a chiseled six feet two inches and 230 pounds. Brown appeared in many movies and was sometimes cited as a black Superman for his cinematic adventures. Quote, although the range of emotion Brown displayed on screen was no wider than a male slot, he never embarrassed himself, never played to a demeaning stereotype of the comic Patsy, end quote. James Wolcott wrote in the New York Review of Books in his review of Dave Zirin's 2018 biography, Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. He called Brown, quote, a rugged chassis for a more self-assertive figure, the black Uberman, end quote. One of Brown's best remembered roles was in The Dirty Dozen, 1967, in which he played one of 12 convicts assembled by the army for a near-suicide mission to kill high-ranking German officers at a French chateau in advance of the D-Day invasion of Normandy. He next played a marine captain in the Cold War thriller Ice Station Zebra, 1968. In 1969, his character was shown having sex with Raquel Welch's character in the western 100 Rifles, the first major Hollywood film depicting a black man making love to a white woman. Brown was, quote, becoming a black John Wayne, 
or maybe John Wayne with just a hint of Malcolm X thrown in, end quote, Gloria Steinem wrote in New York Magazine in 1968. She quoted him as saying, quote, I don't want to play Negro parts, just cool, tough, modern men who are also Negroes, and not good guys all the time, end quote. But Brown had a problematic personal life. He was arrested more than half dozen times, in most cases when women accused him of violent behavior, at a time when prominent men like athletes, actors, and political figures were generally not held accountable for purported transgressions against women. Brown was never convicted of a major crime. In some instances, the accusers refused to testify, and in others he was exonerated by juries. The first accusation against Brown was lodged in 1965 when an 18-year-old woman testified that he had assaulted her at a Cleveland motel. Brown denied the allegation and was found not guilty at a jury trial. A year later, the woman filed a civil paternity suit claiming that Brown had fathered her baby daughter. The jury found in his favor. In June 1968, the police, arriving at Brown's Hollywood home after a neighbor phoned to report a disturbance, found his 22-year-old girlfriend, Eva Bone Shin, a model, lying bloodied and badly injured on his patio. They suspected that Brown had thrown her off his second-story balcony. He said she had fallen. Ms. Bone Shin refused to testify, which resulted in the dismissal of an assault charge. Brown paid a $300 fine for interfering with a police officer who had been seeking entrance to his home. Brown's wife, Sue Brown, with whom he had three children, obtained a divorce in 1972. When Spike Lee released his documentary, Jim Brown, All-American, in 2002, Brown was in jail in the Los Angeles area, having lost an appeal over a misdemeanor vandalism conviction in 1999. Brown's wife at that time, Monique Brown, had called the police to report that he had smashed the windows of her car with a shovel after an argument. Brown had been offered community service and anger management counseling, but he refused to accept that and was jailed for nearly four months. But the marriage endured. Quote, I can definitely get angry, and I have taken the anger out inappropriately in the past, end quote, Brown told Sports Illustrated in an interview at the jail. Quote, but I have done so with both men and women, end quote. In 1978, Brown was sentenced to a day in jail and fined $500 for beating and choking a male friend during their golf match in Inglewood, California, evidently after an argument over the spot where his friend had placed his ball on the ninth green. Quote, so do I have a problem with women? End quote. Brown added in the interview, quote, no, I have had anger and I'll probably continue to have anger. I just have to not strike out at anyone ever again. End quote. Brown maintained over the years that he had been victimized because of his race or his celebrity status. In an interview with Judy Clemsrud of the New York Times in April 1969, in which he spoke about the balcony incident, he said, quote, The cops were after me because I'm free and black, and I'm supposed to be arrogant and supposed to be militant, and I swing free and loose, and have been outspoken on racial matters and I don't preach against black militant groups, and I'm not humble, end quote. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times 
on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Subheading, Rural Beginnings. James Nathaniel Brown was born on February 17, 1936, on St. Simons Island, off the Georgia coast, a rural area where the black populace lived off the land. When he was a few weeks old, his father, Swinton Brown, who had a reputation as a gambler and womanizer, abandoned him and Jim's teenage mother, Theresa Brown. When he was two, she took a job as a domestic in Great Neck, New York, on Long Island, an overwhelmingly white but politically liberal community, leaving him in Georgia in the care of a great-grandmother, a grandmother, and an aunt. She sent for him when he was eight, and they lived together for a while. She continued to work as a housekeeper. By his account, he felt that she was more interested in her boyfriend than in attending to his needs. He eventually moved in with the family of his girlfriend in nearby Manhasset. At Manhasset High School, he became a brilliant running back and lacrosse player, and also competed in basketball and baseball and ran track. The second black player in the history of Syracuse football, Brown became an All-American in football and lacrosse. In his final regular season football game, a 61-7 victory over Colgate, he scored six touchdowns, kicked seven extra points, and ran for 197 yards. Syracuse went to the 1957 Cotton Bowl, where Brown scored three touchdowns and kicked three extra points in a 28-27 loss to Texas Christian. Cleveland selected Brown as the number six pick of the 1957 NFL Draft. He won the first of his three Most Valuable Player awards, as selected by the Associated Press, when he ran for a league-leading 942 yards as a rookie. After the 1962 season, Brown led a group of players who complained to Modell, the team owner, that Paul Brown, the franchise's founder and head coach, was too rigid in continuing with conservative offensive schemes that were being bypassed by other NFL teams using wide-open offenses. Blanton Collier was named coach in 1963, and Brown had his greatest season, running for an NFL record 1,863 yards. The Browns defeated the Baltimore Colts for the NFL championship in 1964. Brown won his third MVP award in 1965, when the Browns again played for the league championship, this time losing to the Green Bay Packers. Brown led the NFL in rushing in eight of his nine seasons. He also set NFL records for career yardage, 12,312, total touchdowns, 126, touchdowns by running, 106, and average yards rushing per game, 104, and per carry, 5.22. He ran for more than 1,000 yards seven times when teams played only 12 and then 14 games a season, parentheses, they now play 17, and parentheses, and at a time when the rule book favored the passing game over running plays. He caught 20 touchdown passes, and he returned kickoffs. Brown credited his offensive lineman with springing him into the secondary, and then, as he told Alex Haley in a 1968 interview with Playboy, quote, I was on my own, end quote. Quote, then I had a man-to-man -man situation going me against them. That's when I'd go into my bag of stuff, end quote, he said. Quote, they're in trouble now. I'm in their territory. 
55 things are happening at once. I'm moving, evaluating their possible moves, trying to outthink and outmaneuver them, using my speed, quickness, and balance, end quote. Quote, but sometimes it got down to out-and-out out strength and brute force, end quote, Brown said. Quote, some guys, if they were small enough, I'd just run over them, end quote. Brown seemed perpetually battered, getting up slowly after running plays, but he said that was a psychological tactic. As he put it in his 1989 memoir, Out of Bounds, written with Steve Delson, quote, by getting up with leisure every play, every game, every season, they never knew if I was hurt or if I wasn't, end quote. Most of Brown's especially significant records have since been eclipsed, but he was accorded tributes long after his football career ended. In 1994, he was named to the NFL's 75th anniversary all-time team. In 2015, Syracuse University unveiled statues of Brown and the star running backs who succeeded him, Ernie Davis and Floyd Little, all of whom wore number 44 on a patio called Plaza 44. The second Browns franchise dedicated a statue of Brown outside its first energy stadium in 2016. Seeking support for his Amer I Can Foundation's efforts to curb gang violence, Brown and the former NFL linebacker Ray Lewis met with President-elect Donald J. Trump at his Trump Tower office in Manhattan in December 2016. Brown and the musician Kanye West had lunch with Mr. Trump at the White House in October 2018. Quote, this is the President of the United States, end quote, Brown said after the White House meeting. Quote, he allowed me to be invited to his territory. He treated us beautifully, and he shared some thoughts, and he will be open to talking when I get back to him, end quote. He married Monique Gunthrop in 1997, and she survives him. Brown is also survived by their son, Aris, and their daughter, Morgan, a daughter, Kim, and a son, Kevin, who were twins, and another son, James Jr., from his marriage to Sue Brown. At least one defensive player looked at the bright side in describing an encounter with Brown. Remembering the first time he faced him, the Dallas Cowboys Pro Bowl linebacker Chuck Howley told Life Magazine, quote, I had one of my best days. I made almost as much yardage as he did, riding on his back, end quote. Heading. Nebraska votes to restrict abortion and transgender care for minors. Subheading. After weeks of acrimonious debate, Republicans put the two fraught issues into a single bill, which the governor has said he will sign. By Ernesto Londonio. Nebraska lawmakers voted on Friday to restrict access to abortion and medical care for transgender youth after weeks of vociferous debate on two issues that have divided state legislators across the country this year. Conservative lawmakers bundled provisions restricting access to both forms of medical treatment into a single bill in the final days of the legislative session. The merger was done for practical reasons in Nebraska's capital. As a result of persistent filibustering by Democrats, Proponents of limits on abortion and transgender care were running out of time to push the issues through as standalone laws before the session ended. The blended bill, known as LB 574, passed by a 33 to 15 vote. 
it includes looser restrictions than the original provisions that Republicans sought to pass. Republicans saw it as a compromise, while Democrats were furious about what they saw as a last-minute scramble to revive restrictions on abortion. Minutes after vote, opponents of the bill gathered outside the chamber and chanted, Shame, according to a video posted by Nebraska Public Media News. Nebraska Republicans initially had sought to ban most abortions after six weeks of pregnancy, but that measure failed, and the amended proposal set the limit at 12 weeks. The bill includes exceptions for rape, incest, and medical emergencies. An earlier bill on medical treatment for transgender people would have barred minors from receiving puberty blockers, hormone therapy, and surgeries. But after extensive debate and backroom negotiations, Republicans scaled back their goal to ensure that they would have enough support. The proposal approved on Friday banned surgeries and calls on the state's chief medical officer to establish criteria under which puberty blockers and hormone therapy may be administered to people younger than 19. The restriction will be enforced starting on October 1st. State Senator Ben Hansen, a Republican who proposed attaching the abortion limit to the bill restricting transgender care, said neither side emerged with a clear victory. Quote, I feel that this is what good government is all about, end quote, Mr. Hansen said. Quote, we listened to what the opposition had to say, pumped the brakes, and moved it through in a compromising fashion, end quote. Democrats in Nebraska's 49-seat unicameral legislature, which is nominally nonpartisan but dominated by Republicans, did not see it that way. They expressed concern that the chief medical officer, who is appointed by the Republican governor, would establish onerous requirements to access puberty blockers and hormones. Quote, this has the potential to be a backdoor to a full ban, end quote, said Senator John Fredrickson, a Democrat from Omaha who is among the lawmakers who filibustered for weeks in an effort to block the original transgender bill. Quote, I don't see this as a compromise in any way, shape, or form, end quote. The bill says that puberty blockers and hormones may be prescribed to patients who have a, quote, long-lasting and intense pattern of gender nonconformity or gender dysphoria which began or worsened at the start of puberty, end quote. It establishes that those treatments may be administered only after a person has attended an unspecified number of psychotherapy sessions. The bill is the latest in the nation's fight over reproductive care. Since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last June, 14 states have banned most abortions. Restrictions are being fought in the courts in several states. Democrats in Nebraska rejoiced last month when the effort to ban abortions after six weeks of pregnancy fell short by a single vote. Senator Merv Riepe, a Republican, deemed the six-week ban too severe, dooming the bill's passage. Mr. Riepe signaled support for the 12-week ban and voted in favor of efforts to merge the two issues this week. Governor Jim Pillen, a Republican, celebrated the vote to restrict access to abortion and transgender medical care. Quote, all children deserve a chance to grow and live happy, fruitful lives, end quote, he said in a statement. Quote, this includes pre-born boys and girls, and it includes children struggling with their gender identity, end quote. 
The fight over both issued shattered traditions of civility and bipartisanship in a state where lawmakers have long sought to remain removed from the divisiveness of national politics. Senator George Dungan, a Democrat, called the bill discriminatory and predicted it would face legal challenges. Quote, we should not be in the business of telling people what they can and can't do with their bodies, end quote, he said during the final minutes of the debate that preceded the vote on Friday afternoon. Quote, we should not be in the business of stepping between doctors and patients, end quote. The intensity of the debate this year in Nebraska came partly because the transgender health care ban issue was deeply personal for Democrats. One of the chamber's liberal lawmakers, Senator Megan Hunt, has a transgender son. During legislative debates, she angrily accused Republican colleagues of seeking to legislate away her parental rights. Senator Michella Kavanaugh, a Democrat who led efforts to filibuster to prevent Republicans from passing their original proposal, said those who opposed limits to abortion and transgender care would continue to fight through the courts and other means. She said that the hard-fought legislative session had galvanized activism in Nebraska. Quote, I think the only victory in this is that trans people, especially trans youth, are no longer invisible, end quote, she said. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Heading, Jamal Bowman finds his voice. Some Republicans don't like the sound. Subheading, the Democratic congressman has made a habit of brashly confronting Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene, often in public displays meant to attract attention. By Nicholas Fandos. Many of his colleagues had already left for the night, but as Representative Jamal Bowman, Democrat of New York, stepped out onto the Capitol steps on Wednesday, he had business left to do, heckling Republicans. Quote, have some dignity, end quote. He yelled toward Representative George Santos, the New York freshman who is fighting federal fraud charges, and to a sea of TV cameras waiting below. Quote, listen, no more QAnon, no more MAGA, no more debt ceiling nonsense, end quote. He said as he pivoted to another confrontation, this time with Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, who stood nearby. The theatrical back and forth ended as Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a fellow member of the left-wing squad, gave a slight tug to Mr. Bowman's arm, repeating, she ain't worth it, bro. But not before a handful of lawmakers whipped out cell phone cameras to capture the soon-to-be viral spat. In this hyper-partisan era, the country has no shortage of politicians willing to savage each other from across a hearing room or on social media. But Mr. Bowman, a media-savvy Democratic Socialist from the Bronx, has rapidly made a name for himself this spring by going where most of them have not, up to his opponent's actual faces. Mr. Bowman's platform includes far-reaching left-wing policies that split his party. Still, his style, quote, middle school principal energy, end quote, he calls it, appears to have captured the id of even more moderate Democrats and has fueled party speculation about his ambition. A video in which an AR-15 owning House Republican from Kentucky tells Mr. Bowman, 47, to calm down as they argue over how to stop gun violence has already been viewed more than 7 million times. A friendlier confrontation 
with a conservative House colleague, spawned a full CNN debate. Quote, I don't mean any harm, end quote, Mr. Bowman said in an interview. Quote, I ain't trying to hurt nobody, but we've got to take America to the next level, and we are not moving with urgency, end quote. The approach also carries risks, especially for a black man, some of which came into sharp relief on Thursday. That is when Miss Green, a combative Georgian with a history of spouting conspiracy theories and directly confronting her own political opponents, said that she had felt threatened by Mr. Bowman, even though video showed her smiling as they sparred. Miss Green said that Mr. Bowman had called her a white supremacist, an insult she claimed was equal to someone, quote, calling a person of color the N-word, end quote. She then said that the congressman's, quote, physical mannerisms are aggressive, end quote, and accused him of leading a mob targeting her when they both appeared outside a Manhattan courthouse where former President Donald J. Trump was being arraigned, an apparent reference to a crowd that consisted largely of members of the news media. Quote, I'm very concerned about Jamal Bowman, end quote, Ms. Green said, quote, and he's someone that people should watch, end quote. The comments left Mr. Brown outraged, if not quite surprised. Quote, there's a history of this, from Mike Brown to Emmett Till to any black man who is passionate, outspoken, intelligent, trying to stand their ground, being confronted with violence, end quote, Mr. Bowman said. Quote, her words today were violent and might induce violence if they get into the wrong ears, end quote. The exchange underscored how much is at stake in an approach that scholars of political rhetoric called a sharp departure from how members of Congress, and black politicians more broadly, have married policy and style for generations. Prominent black politicians associated with the civil rights movement or its aftermath have found success by tailoring their speech to white audiences on the national stage. Barack Obama spent eight years as president restraining his emotions to project composure. Representative Hakeem Jeffries, the House Democratic leader whom Mr. Bowman counts as a friend, is known to have a sharp tongue, but his critiques of Republicans are almost always delivered in carefully worded paragraphs from behind a lectern. Michael Eric Dyson, a professor of African-American studies at Vanderbilt University, said that Mr. Bowen was part of a younger generation of black politicians who have been shaped by hip-hop culture, who also bring, quote, unvarnished gut-bucket speech to bear on American politics, end quote, with no desire to coddle those who disagree with them. Quote, he's not concerned about moderating his speech or modulating his voice to please, to protect or to somehow placate the dominant white ear or culture, end quote, Mr. Dyson said. Quote, he ain't doing it, end quote. Mr. Bowman, who spent years as a teacher and administrator, won his Bronx and Westchester County seat in 2020, defeating a more moderate three-decade incumbent in a Democratic primary. He ran on a platform that included a wealth tax on the rich, national rent control, sweeping climate policies with a federal jobs guarantee, shifting money from police departments to social services, and a single-parent healthcare system. But during his first term in Washington, Mr. Bowman mostly kept his head down and proved to be a reliable ally of House leaders. 
His tenure started just before the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol and played out as Congress struggled to move past the coronavirus pandemic. That began to change this spring, after Mr. Bowman won re-election by a wide margin and as Ms. Ocasio-Cortez has pulled back from some of the fights she helped steer as a new member of Congress. He said that he has begun a series of, quote, passionate engagements, end quote, with Republican colleagues because he felt politicians often sounded, quote, like the Charlie Brown, end quote, teacher in the Peanuts television specials, whose words were rendered as incomprehensible sounds. Quote, I'm not a career politician. I'm not a millionaire. I'm not a businessman, end quote, Mr. Bowman said. I'm an educator, and I engage differently, I guess, than what the institution is used to, end quote. Mr. Bowman, an avid user of TikTok, made waves this spring when he became the first and, for a time, only lawmaker to defend the app, which is owned by a Chinese company, as President Biden and national security hawks threatened to ban it from operating in the United States. Other progressives soon joined him in arguing that the push was rooted in, quote, xenophobic anti-China rhetoric, end quote. A spirited back and forth on the Capitol steps with Representative Byron Donalds, a Florida Republican with whom he liked to talk sports, led CNN to stage a debate between the two black men on race and education policy. Quote, CNN aired two different black men from two different parties for like 30 minutes in an intellectual conversation about our democracy, end quote, Mr. Bowman said. All of the attention has fueled speculation that Mr. Bowman is contemplating a primary challenge against Mayor Eric Adams of New York City, a moderate Democrat whose policing and social services policies he has sharply criticized. Mr. Bowman denied that he was gearing up for a run. Quote, no, 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 I'm chilling. I'm good, man, end quote, he said. Quote, I love being in Congress, end quote. Mr. Bowman said that he has no real relationship with Ms. Green when he approached her after such a vote on Wednesday, but that he had been conscious of the effect his presence could have. Quote, I'm not stupid, end quote, he said. The exchange was pointed but tame. Quote, do something about guns, end quote, he said. Quote, invest in education, end quote. Quote, impeach Biden, end quote, Ms. Green shot back as she twisted the exchange back toward issues like immigration, blaming Democrats for the influx of migrants crossing the southern border. She shook a fist at one point, but the scrum appeared to break up amicably. After Ms. Green's comments on Thursday, Mr. Bowman accused her of recklessly using, quote, a bullhorn to white nationalists, end quote. Nick Dyer, a spokesman for Ms. Green, rejected Mr. Brown's complaint, saying it was Ms. Green who faced constant death threats. Quote, Mr. Bowman doesn't need to play victim, end quote, he said. Quote, he needs to recognize his targeting of Congresswoman Green will encourage this violence, end quote. Heading. Paparazzi speak on Meghan and Harry's car chase. Subheading. Complicated dynamics between celebrities and the paparazzi contributed to the confusion around a recent incident in New York City. By Jacob Bernstein. Quote, it's a messed up business, end quote, said Roger Wong, a freelance photographer 
who on Thursday evening was among a few dozen others waiting on a red carpet outside the Hard Rock Hotel, near Times Square. He was hoping to get a sellable shot of Martha Stewart, one of this year's cover models for Sports Illustrated annual swimsuit issue. Quote, but what am I going to do? Start flipping burgers? I'd probably make more money, but it's not my thing. End quote. At the issue's launch party, the photographers chatted and took pictures of other attendees, who also included Megan Fox and Kim Petras. But they were still reeling from the event that took place two nights before, at the Ziegfeld Ballroom, where Meghan Markle was being honored at the annual Miss Foundation Women of Vision Awards. Upon leaving the gala, Prince Harry, Meghan, and her mother, Doria Ragland, were involved in what a representative for the couple described as a, quote, near-catastrophic car chase, end quote, as a result of a frenzied pursuit by paparazzi. After word of the ordeal ricocheted around the world from a city not especially known for the kind of operatic paparazzi chases that are commonplace in Los Angeles and Europe, several of the photographers were of the strong opinion that the chase had been manufactured or overhyped. Of the nearly dozen the New York Times spoke to, a few said they were at the event. One said he chased the royal couple, but would give details only for money. The first reports largely repeated the claims made by the couple's representative, as well as comments made by a member of the security detail to CNN that the chase could have been fatal. But as more details emerged, from the accounts of the police and a taxi driver who was briefly involved, the facts began to diverge from their account. In a text message, Tina Brown, the author of two books based on the Royals, said the whole story, quote, sounds mildly preposterous, end quote. But that came after claims from the Royals' representative that they had been involved in a dramatic chase that lasted for two hours. Mayor Eric Adams condemned what had occurred as reckless and irresponsible, only to add that he was slightly flummoxed by the idea of a two-hour high-speed car chase in midtown Manhattan. And indeed, the police subsequently concluded that the incident warranted, quote, no further investigation, end quote. Mr. Wong noted that earlier on Tuesday, a lawyer from Prince Harry had appeared in court in London, challenging a government decision not to allow him to pay for police protection during visits home. The timing, Mr. Wong said, was awfully convenient. Even a person who had previously worked with the royals on their public relations strategy said it strained logic that the couple's driver had not simply pulled into a garage at one of the many hotels celebrities frequently use to ward off pursuing photographers. The couple's decision to stay with a friend at an undisclosed location rather than at a secure hotel was ridiculed on page six. In an interview with the Times on Friday, the representative for the couple, Ashley Hansen, said, quote, Respectfully, considering the Duke's family history, one would have to think nothing of the couple or anybody associated with them to believe that this was any sort of PR stunt. Quite frankly, I think that's abhorrent, end quote. For the rotating cast of characters who make their livings photographing the comings and goings of celebrities, the story from the Duke and Duchess of Sussex was in some way bound to be treated with suspicion. One reason for that, said Steve Eichner, 58, an event photographer who has worked for Vogue, WWD, and Variety, 
is that the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, in 1998 in Paris, while being pursued by photographers, calcified public stereotypes about people in the profession. Quote, After she died, I remember being on the red carpet at events and people would drive up, roll down their windows and scream, quote, You're murderers, you're killers, end quote, Mr. Eichner said. Quote, I've never chased a celebrity in my life, end quote. According to Steve Sands, another photographer who has spent the better part of his adult life photographing celebrities, it was also a story in which the entire blame for the tragedy was laid at the photographer's feet, with few seeming to note that the paparazzi were led on a chase by a drunk driver who was escorting Diana and, quote, was determined to be a hero, end quote. Parentheses. A police inquest determined that the driver's blood alcohol concentration was about three times the legal limit, end parentheses. In addition, the punishing economics of the tabloid business, along with the aggressive expansion of Getty Images, a leading supplier of celebrity pictures, have made it difficult to earn a living, several said in interviews on Thursday. Operating independently, they either can't make a sale or have to hound publications for payments, agreeing to sell through Getty earns them royalties of only a few dollars on a small website. Getting shots of celebrities in real-life situations tends to be more lucrative, but the days at $100,000 jackpots are largely over, several said. One person who has excelled despite these odds is Kevin Mazur, an event photographer who co-founded the company Wire Image. In 2007, Wire Image was sold to Getty as part of what was described at the time as a $200 million deal. But Mr. Mazur continues to shoot constantly, including on Tuesday, when he was the sole photographer with full access at the Ms. Foundation Gala. That enabled him to get the only clean shots of Prince Harry and Meghan inside the venue while providing the other shutterbugs with much to complain about as they cast the event as a parable for how monopolies overfeed those at the top and starve everyone else at the bottom. At the same time, the cries of victimhood by paparazzi are less likely to elicit sympathy than the ones made by a man whose mother died in a car crash fleeing from them. Moreover, claims by photographers that no one outside got shots of the couple leaving the event turned out to be false. Quote, they were some of the most beautiful images of the evening, end quote, Ms. Hansen said, who minutes later produced a few of them by text message. At the start of the Tuesday night's gala, Mr. Wong, 62, was one of the photographers shooting in front, where event organizers had announced that Megan would be appearing. There was no indication she would be accompanied by her husband. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the New York Times on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Although there were dozens of other names in attendance, Megan was the only one, in Mr. Wong's estimation, whose picture would have enabled him to get more than $100. A barricade was set up, and photographers believed that although only Mr. Mazur would have inside access, they would still have an opportunity to photograph her outside. The first surprise was spotting the prince. The second was instead of posing for the photographers out front, Megan and Harry darted out into the Hertz car rental nearby and used another entrance to sidestep the photographers. Quote, All these people went around and photographed them through the glass, end quote, said Mr. Wong, who couldn't get close enough to obtain a good shot.
so he went home empty-handed, as did a select group of wire service photographers for outlets like the Associated Press, who had a place upstairs to stand, but never got a shot inside. Michael Stewart, another New York freelance photographer, opted to follow the couple as they left. Although Mr. Stewart declined to be interviewed for this article, he has told people over the past few days that there were six cars involved, three belonging to Megan and Harry, and three belonging to photographers who were in pursuit. There were also around half a dozen trailing on bicycles. Mr. Stewart's electric bike enabled him to keep up for about half an hour as the detail escorted Megan, her mother, and Prince Harry on a circuitous route that involved heading uptown, turning back downtown, then heading all the way east to the Franklin D. Roosevelt Drive, and from there to a police precinct. When they exited, a security guard working for them hailed a yellow taxi. On Thursday, a video of them inside the cab was published on TMZ, and Prince Harry could be seen in the rear passenger seat, holding up his iPhone, shielding his face, seemingly filming them. Parentheses. In the interview, Ms. Hansen confirmed as much, adding, quote, I believe that the kind of footage may turn out to be useful should there be an investigation. End parentheses. The taxi driver, Sukharn Singh, later told the Washington Post that the couple seemed nervous as he began driving them away. He acknowledged that the paparazzi appeared to be following, but said, quote, I don't think I would call it a chase. I never felt like I was in danger. It wasn't like a car chase in a movie. They were quiet and seemed scared, but it's New York. It's safe. End quote. Nevertheless, Mr. Singh said that the security guard riding in the front seat quickly grew concerned and asked to be taken back to the police station. There was not even time for the couple to give him the address to which they were headed. Sometime after, the couple got home by police convoy without having their location discovered. Initially, it wasn't just the mayor who criticized the photographers. The New York Press Photographers Association put out a blistering statement about the paparazzi's alleged conduct, saying it, quote, runs counter to the code of ethics to which all of our members and any press photographer with respect for themselves and the profession are expected to adhere, end quote. Backgrid, an agency that represents at least two of the photographers who drove cars in pursuit of the royal couple, countered in a statement saying that although the agency would be investigating the incident, its photographers reported the couple was in no immediate danger during that time. That led the Duke and Duchess of Sussex to issue another statement demanding the agency hand over the footage. The agency quickly responded with a letter to the couple's legal team that read, quote, In America, as I'm sure you know, property belongs to the owner of it. Third parties cannot just demand it be given to them, as perhaps kings can do. Perhaps you should sit down with your client and advise them that his English rules of royal prerogative to demand that the citizenry hand over their property to the crown were rejected by this country long ago. We stand by our founding fathers. End quote. One of the backgrid photographers involved in the incident was Marvin Patterson, a freelancer known as Blaze. His Facebook page contains numerous pictures of him photobombing models, rap queens, and reality divas around town. He was contacted by the Times late Thursday evening by text message. Mr. Patterson said he would soon be releasing a statement, but would consider revealing more were an aggressive offer to come for his way. 
after being told that the Times does not permit paying sources and subjects, Mr. Patterson said the footage on TMZ pretty much summed up how tame the whole thing actually was. Quote, there is nothing for the public or the police to actually be concerned about, end quote, he said. Quote, the facts are out there. Exactly what you see is what is there, end quote. Then he hung up, only to explain in a subsequent text message that there is simply no incentive to speak. Yes, he said, quote, there is silence because there is no offer of money for my story, end quote. Heading, why Diane Feinstein, like many before her, refuses to let go. Subheading, a life in Congress comes with power, prestige, and perks that can be hard to leave behind. For some lawmakers who view their job as their identity, the prospect is unthinkable. By Annie Carney. Former Senator Tom Harkin, Democrat of Iowa, has put on a suit nine times since 2014, when he retired after serving in Congress for 40 years. He counts. He spends much of his time in the Bahamas now, where he sails and rarely looks back at his years in the Senate with any wistfulness. Quote, people hang on because they want to get something else done, end quote, he said in an interview last year. Quote, but that's the story of life, isn't it? End quote. Giving up the power, perks, and prestige of serving in Congress, while confronting the reality that everyone is ultimately replaceable, isn't always so easy. And politics at its highest levels tends to attract people who consider their job their identity. Senator Dianne Feinstein refers to hers as a calling, and who are afflicted with an inability to imagine a life after giving it up. History is littered with lawmakers who have stayed around well past their primes, Assurances from former colleagues like Mr. Harkin that there's a nice life to be had on the other side can fall on, sometimes literally, deaf ears. Strom Thurmond, the South Carolina Republican, famously hung on until past his 100th birthday. Robert C. Byrd, the West Virginia Democrat, died in office at age 92 after 51 years in the Senate. Despite serious medical issues, Thad Cochran, Republican of Mississippi, ran for re-election at 76, with the prospect of leading the powerful Appropriations Committee too good to pass up, though he later resigned before the end of his term, citing his failing health. Ms. Feinstein, 89, Democrat of California, has announced her retirement, but has refused to entertain the idea of resigning before her term ends in 2025, even as she suffers from substantial memory issues and struggles to do the job after suffering serious complications from shingles, including encephalitis. Ms. Feinstein may appear to be uniquely stubborn, but she is far from alone in being unwilling to let go. After decades in office, it can be hard to imagine leaving behind a life of being treated like a visiting head of state when traveling abroad, being a sought-after voice on influential Sunday shows and the guest of honor at lavish fundraisers, and being attended to by staff members whose lives are dedicated to making the unpleasant hassles of your own fade away. It is not just the perks, like free, reserved parking spots at DC airports, that make it appealing to hang on. Ms. Feinstein, after all, is wealthy and has flown on private planes for the majority of her career. But with long years in Congress also comes more seniority, more seasoned staff, committee chairmanships, and the ability to funnel more money towards one state. There's the built-in soapbox of the Senate floor, where members can champion their priorities 
or rail against policies they oppose. There's the camaraderie of being part of a team, drawn closer together by the built-in adversary that is the opposing party. Many aging lawmakers also feel they have the experience to contribute that makes them more effective than ever for their constituents as they enter life's final chapters. Ms. Feinstein insists that she is still effective, even though her health challenges have forced her to give up some of her power and prestige. She bowed in 2020 to Democrats' wishes that she give up her spot as the top Democrat on the Judiciary Committee and stepped aside rather than serve as President Pro Tempore of the Senate this year a post that usually goes to the most senior member of the majority party. Still, she insists it is not time to go yet. Quote, I continue to work and get results for California, end quote, she said in a statement this week. Former Senator Barbara Boxer, a Democrat who made history with Ms. Feinstein in 1992, when the two were elected as the first female senators from California, said it is incredibly difficult to let go of a job you love especially one in which, quote, not only can you get things done, you can stop bad things from getting done, even as just one person, end quote. She described other benefits of life as a senator, a profession for which men and women have identical job descriptions and age is regarded as a virtue, not a liability. Quote, the Senate is a workplace where there is total equality between men and women, which is not true in most places, end quote, she said. Quote, Women and men get old and are not often respected, so they stay in the Senate or the House to sort of prove people wrong, end quote. There is also, Ms. Boxer said, quote, just the right amount of celebrity. It's not overwhelming, but very satisfying when people come up and say, thank you, end quote. The Senate, often referred to as the world's most exclusive retirement home, where the average age is over 65 and octogenarians are not uncommon, also fosters an environment conducive to aging and power. There is an attending physician on hand at the Capitol, and medical prescriptions are delivered from a nearby pharmacy to the basement of the building for easy pickup. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 19th, 2023 issue of the New York Times. Your reader has been Jack Harity. Thank you for listening.